My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Be honest. If you read the title of this episode before pressing play, you're already expecting to be depressed. This is an episode about a climate report that explains just how much danger we are all in. But of course, plenty of Canadians no longer need reports to tell them that. The east side of Abbotsford's farmlands submerged. More than a thousand homes evacuated. In Metro Vancouver, it's been so hot, some sidewalks have started to buckle. We're having constant washouts. We're having constant basements flooded. We had the children out playing baseball in the front yard. They can't do that anymore. That land is gone. Arctic polar bears are facing near extinction by the end of the century if the sea ice they depend on continues to disappear. One of the major takeaways from the new Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report is just how much of the world is already feeling the impacts of climate change and just how many of the rest of us will be joining them soon. But please, before you hit stop to save yourself from hearing what you already know, hear this. The report also says very clearly that we are not yet locked into the worst possible future that we still have the power to alter the course of the climate, and that the impacts from the measures we do take will be felt much more quickly than we previously thought. So, in other words, it's not time to get sad, it's time to get serious. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Catherine Abreu is the founder and executive director of Destination Zero, a nonprofit dedicated to accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels. You might remember her from previous episodes when she appeared as the executive director of Climate Action Network Canada. She is also a member of Canada's Net Zero advisory body. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Jordan. Good to be with you. It's always nice to talk to you when we get one of these reports that that makes me terribly depressed. I'll be honest, I'm sharing that feeling of depression. This was a really, really tough one to read. Well, let's start with your initial gut reaction as you read this report. What's going through your mind and your heart? A friend of mine who I was speaking to earlier today referred to this report as an atlas of human suffering. And I think that's really how it came across to me in reading it. It is a devastating and thorough account of the impacts that climate change is having on humans and natural ecosystems, other species and communities around the world. And it's really, really painful to read that, to to understand the extent of the damage that climate change is causing everywhere and the real harm that humans are experiencing um, from those impacts around the world. So I think a lot of us reading this report yesterday combined with the instability that we're experiencing in the world, the war in Ukraine, um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are feeling 
how heavy this is and how how many issues that we as humans need to be grappling with simultaneously right now, even as we still recover from the COVID-19 pandemic or, or work to recover from it. Were you surprised by the tone of the report? So this is the thing, right? As painful as this is, as much grief as I'm experiencing from reading this report, I wasn't surprised at all. I think a lot of us know at this point that climate change is affecting our everyday lives. I mean, Canadians in particular, I think a lot of us have in previous years felt like climate change was something happening far away. But in recent years, climate change has gone from something on our front doorsteps to something that's really moved in. Uh, And so it's not just, you know, Indigenous communities and communities in the north and on the coasts of Canada that are experiencing climate change impacts. It's, It's all of us across the country, including in the urban centers. Over 500 people died from the heat dome in BC this summer over 1 billion sea creatures. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that climate change is alive and happening to all of us everywhere right now is not surprising. I think there were some things that this report identified very clearly that we haven't seen scientists talk about so boldly before. And some of those things surprised me. And and we'll dig into those, I think, further on in our conversation. We're going to talk about the future and what we can still do and what we don't have enough time left to do. But as you mentioned, a lot of this report focuses on how vulnerable the world is right now, not 20 years, 40 years in the future. Just how widespread are its impacts and do we know what it's costing us, like today, tomorrow? Yeah, so as I said, this report is a very detailed chronicling of the impacts of climate change that we are seeing around the world at just 1.1 degree of warming above pre-industrial levels. So that's how much the temperature has warmed in the last century or so, 1.1 degree. And remember that the temperature limit we're aiming for under the Paris Agreement is 1.5 degrees Celsius. So basically this report is saying at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, every community, every country around the world is experiencing extreme and escalating impacts of climate change that is having a devastating effect not only on the human health and biological diversity in those countries, but is also having extreme significant impacts economically in those countries. So this report also digs deep into the infrastructure costs, those hard cost impacts from climate change. I want to interrupt you there because it introduced me to a new term that I hadn't heard in this context before called loss and damage. Can you explain what that means uh, when we're talking about climate change? Right. So this is exactly where this concept of loss and damage comes into play. This report talks about adaptation, so how we as communities can better build our resilience to withstand these climate impacts and how much we need to be increasing our efforts on that adaptation front because really not a lot of energy has been put there so far. But it also says it introduces this concept of soft and hard limits to adaptation. So it says there are some kind of tipping points that we've already reached when it comes to adaptation. And it's going to be really challenging for us to come back from those tipping points. But these are soft limits. And if we put the right policies into place, we're going to be able to put those adaptation policies into play and perhaps have a chance of saving this vulnerable ecosystem. So coral reefs are a really good example of that. But on the hard limits to adaptation, it says 
there are some places where we've maybe already surpassed the point where we can claw back these impacts. Mm. And we're now moving from the idea of adaptation to the idea of accounting for losses and damages. Those things that we are going to lose to climate change that we can't build back from. And so there are some ecosystems that are good examples of that. Forests, for instance, that have been lost to forest fires or huge pest infestations. We can't come back from the loss of some of those primary forests. And how do we account for that loss when communities are potentially now having to move away from the area that they've lived in their whole existence? So I think, again, in the Canadian context, the IPCC report identified that the Mi'kmaq community of Lennox Island First Nation may have to totally relocate soon because of sea level rise. And there are other small island communities around the world that are having to do the same. So that's what the idea of loss and damage is. And there's a huge debate going on in the global community about whether we compensate countries and communities for those losses and damages. What do we say to the Marshall Islands when they're having to move entire populations off of one island and pay for that relocation? Right. Who pays for that? And I, that's a huge conversation in the, in the global sphere. Well, who is bearing the brunt right now uh, of the irreversible parts of climate change? Because, you know, it's, it's not me right now, anyway, sitting in my, my house in East End Toronto. Yeah, and this is something that the report is extremely clear on. It talks about those vulnerable populations and communities that are already being hardest hit by climate impacts and that will continue to be hardest hit moving forward. And, you know, the deep injustice, of course, is that for the most part, these most vulnerable communities are least responsible for climate change. Mm -hmm. On a global basis, we're talking about, you know, industrializing countries, small island developing states, places in the world that are most vulnerable to climate impacts like desertification and sea level rise, and that have fewer resources to respond to those impacts. But we're also talking about communities within countries. The experience of climate change isn't the same for everyone in one country. Again, let's think about Canada, where in the north, average warming is three times the global average. Mm -hmm. So while the world has warmed by about one degree Celsius, the north in Canada has warmed by three degrees Celsius. So communities in the north in Canada, particularly indigenous communities, are very much and have been for a long time on the front lines of devastating climate impacts that are completely changing their way of life. And so if we are thinking about limiting warming and trying to mitigate some of these really harmful effects that people are experiencing, what this report is saying, let's look first on how we can target our efforts to protect those who are most vulnerable. Because an unfortunate finding of this report, a heartbreaking finding of this report, is that even if we are able to limit average warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, almost half of the world's population will still be exposed to significant climate impacts at 1.5 degrees of warming. So what we do today has to really emphasize building up protection and resilience for those communities. There's a lot of really sobering stuff like that in this report. But I will say the one thing that I was wondering about as we looked forward to it is how it would characterize the progress that we are making. Because, you know, I'm I'm looking at anecdotes and, and data from different countries at different times, but it does seem like clean energy and electric vehicles 
are taking over more rapidly than we expected and than we could have hoped for. So I was kind of hoping to see something about serious progress in there. What does it say about that? This report actually goes into pretty good detail about where policy failures exist. So why is it that what we've been doing on climate change so far hasn't been protecting us well enough from the kinds of impacts that we're experiencing? And how do we have to correct for that to make sure that we are able to cover those vulnerabilities and adjust those policies so that they're working better moving forward? We're going to get another report from the IPCC in about a month, and that report will very specifically focus on the kinds of tools that we need to be implementing to mitigate emissions, so mm-hmm. to, to try and solve for this problem. So maybe we'll talk again after that report comes out and it'll be a little bit more solutions-oriented. But this report tells us where we need to look for improvements. It says, first of all, a lot of the policies that governments have been using to address the climate crisis thus far have been extremely incremental. Uh, And this is something you and I have chatted about before, right? Yeah. This idea that, yes, we can enact policy by policy, piece by piece, regulations that might make it easier for people to buy an electric vehicle, that makes it easier for renewable energy to be integrated into our electricity mix. And those policies are useful. But if they're not contextualized within a broader plan that gets at some more systemic, structural, transformative change, then those specific initiatives don't have the impact that they could have. And so this report is saying we need bigger, bolder policy that's not incremental, that's about structural transformation. And it also says those policies have to have the money to back them up. This report goes into some significant detail on the failures of governments to provide adequate financing, adequate financial packages to make these kinds of climate policies work. A good example of that is actually investing in renewable energy. So Hmm. we know that governments continue to invest huge amounts of money into fossil fuels. But the IEA, the International Energy Agency, told us earlier this year, or last year, 2021, that we need about $3 trillion of investments going into clean energy technologies year over year from now on to get to where we need to go on climate. And governments just aren't mobilizing that amount of money right now, nor is the private sector. So we need way more money on the table. And then I think one other thing that this report does is it points to one of the biggest barriers to climate progress thus far. And that is lobbying from the fossil fuel industry. Right. There is a quote, a really powerful quote in this report about the ways in which the fossil fuel industry has stood in the way of climate action that I think is worth reading aloud because I've never seen anything like this appear in an IPCC report before. Go for it. They say misinformation and active resistance to climate action from the oil and gas industry have made us all more vulnerable. Rhetoric and undermining of science have contributed to uncertainty, unduly discounted risk and urgency, dissent and polarized public support, delaying mitigation and adaptation action. So this idea that this pushback that we get from the oil and gas industry makes us all more vulnerable, I think is a very important one that we need to be paying attention to. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. What does the future hold, according to the report? I think whenever we talk about this, one of the top questions I have, and I think most people have, is, you know, uh, my kid is whatever years old. Will they have a relatively normal, livable life on this planet? What is the latest forecast on that? How fast is the window closing? So here is the the ray of light in this report that is otherwise very painful and challenging to read. It's not too late. This report makes it really clear it's not too late. But it also makes it really clear that the window of opportunity that we have to act is vanishingly small. And if we don't take that window of opportunity, if we don't seize it right now, then we do have a lot to worry about when it comes to thinking about how young people today will live 30, 40, 50 years from now. And that means the next 10 years. That means between now and 2030, doing everything we possibly can to bend that emissions curve. And that's because another ray of hope that this report, I think, pulls out more distinctly than other reports have in recent years, which is that the lag time on temperature decline after we stop greenhouse gas emissions is way shorter than we previously thought. Hmm. So we used to think it would take 30 to 40 years for temperatures to start dropping once we stopped greenhouse gas emissions. But this report, and and in fact, a couple of other reports have said this, but not as distinctly, this report says pretty clearly, no, actually, if we cut emissions to zero, we're going to see temperature falling pretty quickly in the next decade after that. So right now, we see a bunch of countries, including Canada, committing to getting to 40 to 45 to 50% emissions reductions by 2030, cutting emissions in half over the course of the next 10 years. And we also see a lot of countries saying we're going to get to zero emissions or net zero emissions by 2050. If we are actually doing able to do that, if countries implement climate action aggressively in the next nine years, have emissions by 2030, get to zero emissions by 2050, then by the 2060s, we might be seeing global temperature starting to drop and maybe those future generations have a chance of living in a world that looks more like the world we've had the pleasure and privilege of living in. What are a couple of things that the Canadian government, but I guess any government around the world, could do right now to take that kind of action before 2030? Give me your your top two hits, I guess. The biggest one for me is seriously addressing our move away from fossil fuel dependence. This is the biggest sticking point from my perspective. It's a sticking point for a bunch of reasons. Number one, energy transition is challenging. No one's denying that. But it is also true that we have the technologies that we need to make that transition a reality. And the thing that we're missing is political will and the effort to move money from the problem to the solution. So we need to be moving away from fossil fuels as soon as possible. That means changing our energy systems so that they rely on renewable energy, shrinking our energy systems so that we're reducing energy waste, and no longer investing in new fossil fuel production projects. 
here we are having this conversation while Canada is considering building a huge new offshore oil field in Newfoundland. That is crazy thinking in 2021. We need to be thinking about the huge new solar or wind or other renewable energy projects we need to be building, not more fossil fuels. So that's number one. And number two is we need to be thinking about this in a more integrated way. So I talked about that transformational policy. We need to be pulling in not only policies that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but policies that will do that while helping communities build resilience and while helping correct social injustices in those communities. So a great example of that is a renewable energy program that isn't just about reducing emissions from a previous diesel generator, but that's also about giving energy autonomy to an Indigenous community that hasn't had autonomy over its energy in the past, and thereby changing the way in which that whole community works. So that kind of integrated policy is what this report is telling us that we need to make those big changes that have real meaning for people's lives. This isn't explicitly related to the report. But since you mentioned off the top, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now, I want to ask you about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine for two reasons. First, because we have seen most of the world rally quickly to impose far-reaching regulations, sanctions, punitive measures on Russia. And is that a sign that when things are dire enough, the world can actually act very quickly. And then the second is, what does the world turning against Russia mean potentially? This is something I've heard for future reliance or non-reliance on natural gas. So on your first question, does this give us an example of how quickly governments can move in an emergency Yeah, for sure it does. And it builds on the many examples of that that we got over the course of the last few years as governments responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. That being said, there is something really interesting going on in the ways that governments respond to Russia's war in Ukraine. We heard about, you know, sanctions, heavy sanctions being levied against Russia. But what we haven't been hearing a whole lot about is that many of those sanctions so far have exempted fossil fuels have exempted oil and gas from Russia. And that's a really sticky political issue. And it's just one of the examples that make a really clear case for the ways in which Russia's war in Ukraine are deeply interconnected with the energy crisis and climate change. Because Russia supplies 41% of gas to the European market. And so that heavy reliance that Europe has on Russian gas actually mitigates Europe and other countries like the U.S.'s um, political willingness to issue the kinds of sanctions against Russia that might actually make a difference in this situation. We're starting to see that change now, but I think this is just yet another example of, yeah, governments can go fast when they need to, but the energy industry and the fossil fuel industry is incredibly powerful and will continue to stand in the way of that kind of action, even at this kind of emergency scale. So that's one lesson. On the second lesson, what does this potentially mean for the future of energy in Europe and in other parts of the world and our relationship with gas? 
by the way, I'm starting to really intentionally strike the word natural in front of gas from my vocabulary. Interesting. Why? Well, we don't talk about natural oil or natural coal or natural wind for that matter. We use the phrase natural gas because of a really effective advertising campaign that the gas industry put on a few decades ago to convince us all about how clean and natural gas is. So gas is a fossil fuel just like any other. (laughs) And Uh, And it's something that we need to be phasing out. We've now been hearing European countries and the U.S. and Canada talk a whole lot more about energy efficiency than I think we've been hearing in the past. And that is really significant because we can't just be thinking about continuing our same consumption of energy for an indefinite period into the future, just switching to renewables. We actually have to be really intentional in the energy that we use. And so I do think that there is something interesting here going on and we may see a real shift in mindset toward energy conservation and providing the energy use that a country does need as much as possible from energy efficiency and renewable energy in that country. So we'll see how this shakes out. And of course, Mostly on my mind is, you know, the the incredible suffering that's happening in Ukraine right now. But I do think it has some significant implications for the energy transition that we'll see in the next few years. Last question. Do you think this report will actually spur any more urgent action? I know when we've talked before, you've described yourself as a climate optimist. Um, You don't sound that way now. It's one of those things, right, where you're like, well, how many... How many times does the intense urgency of this situation need to be articulated for us to get the kind of action that is needed Mm -hmm. from governments? And I think we're at a point now where not only are the right reports out there in the world, we have all the information and the facts that we need, but we also have these like daily reminders that we're experiencing directly in front of us of climate impacts. And so the question from my perspective is not like, okay, is this report going to spur more action? The question is, are people going to rise up and tell their governments that we're not going to put up with their garbage anymore? Like we're not putting up with any more excuses. And we expect governments to step in and use the powers that they have to act on our collective best interest in the longer term, putting aside short-term political gain. And that is a big question that I think all of us as citizens have to be prepared to demand an answer from our decision makers on. Catherine, once again, thank you for this. One day you'll come on with some good news for me, I promise. (laughs) Maybe I'll have to do a career change for that. (laughs) (laughs) We can only hope that you won't. But thank you again, as always. Thanks, Jordan. Catherine Abreu, founder and executive director of Destination Zero. That was the big story. For more uplifting episodes like this one, including previous episodes on war and poverty and all the best stuff. Oh, wait, the plague. We also cover the plague. For more of all of that, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Write to us anytime, thebigstorypodcast, that is all one word, at rci.rogers.com. If you have a good news story to propose to us, please, I would really love to hear it. We're in the market for that kind of thing. As soon as we get a spare day with no disasters to cover it. You can find this podcast in any podcast player you like. You can also find it on any smart speaker by asking your smart speaker to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. 
We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.